Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I am Ren, and I didn't write an intro to this. I was trying to come up with some sort of joke about if this book didn't turn me into a horse girl, nothing was going to, but it didn't formulate, so that's that's what you got. I'm Ren. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> I'm Brandon, and my dog doesn't like that we're recording <laughs> titular dog mm, yes you know we haven't talked enough about the dog i think about whether or not the dog actually exists the, the, dog, dog, the exists. dog exists yeah the book report never a, existed this is true but the book existed the book did exist she didn't eat it so much as tear it up i can't say for sure that she didn't ingest some amount of it though she was a puppy Puppies like to put things in their mouths and sometimes swallow them. There were puppies in this book. Not until much later. We'll get to that. Today we are uh, going to be reviewing a book which I selected, uh, The Hero and the Crown, which is a 1984 fantasy novel. It was not necessarily marketed towards young adults because we weren't in that sort of teenage fantasy rush yet, but generally tame enough for young adults. It spans the life of Erin Soule, McKinley's made-up word for princess, from her teen years until nebulously mid-twenties. She lives a cooped-up existence in her father, the king's castle, generally looked down upon by the rest of the kingdom because her late mother was thought to be a foreign witch. After an incident with her bully leaves her convalescing for a good long while, only able to read books, she discovers a recipe for a superpowered dragon-fighting Vaseline and sets off to make a name for herself as the dragon slayer for the kingdom. After many years, many dragon murders, some magical PTSD of sorts, and being ogled creepily by her much older than her cousin, who she has firmly friend-zoned until she realizes it's kind of her duty to marry him. She saves the kingdom from a different threat that comes out at the 11th hour, but it's okay because she has a MacGuffin that appears also at the 11th hour with some help of some companions that weirdly showed up at the 11th hour. There was a lot of stuff that happened in like the last 30 pages. <laughs> trying to think of what content warnings we need for this book. We've got, you know, there's kind of like standard medieval fantasy sexism. There's some pretty, pretty impressive depictions of gore. Yeah, and also being um, severely burned. Mm, yes, you're right. A lot of mention of, of of injury. Yeah. Yeah, and some some amount of fantasy racism. Yes, it's. We'll get into that. It's. It's. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, this is a this is a me pick. So this is something I've read before, and Brandon has not. I read this book for the first time in sixth grade, and as I may have mentioned, I was sort of like weirdly younger than all of my fellow students because I started school in California, and the rules were different or something. So in sixth grade, I was ten, I I, I believe ten, yeah. Uh, and I read. I know that I read this in sixth grade because it was assigned. Everyone in my sixth grade class had to read this. 
I have no idea why this was assigned. I've never actually met anybody else for which this book was assigned as a school reading, but uh, it was. This particular teacher assigned us a lot of rather interesting books. A couple of them will definitely be books that I've selected because I just kind of liked this teacher's taste in books, turns out. But, uh, you know, it resonated me as, you know, a little lonely 10-year-old nerd uh, because, you know, it ticked a number of the boxes. Uh, The main character is an orphan. Main character has not-like-other-girls vibes. Uh, main character fiddled with science stuff for a little while in an accessible way that my 10-year-old brain could could fathom. <laughs> so not like hard science, but fantasy science. Woo. And I really, really liked it and just kind of inhaled it and had very fond memories of it uh, for the rest of my grown-up life. But one of the interesting things is that this is one of the books that I have very very strong memories of really liking but that I never went back and reread so this is my first time rereading it since I was 10. There was a lot that I didn't remember I basically only remembered up until maybe two-thirds of the way through the book I kind of thought that the big black dragon fight was the end I just had no recollection of any of the rest of the book. You? Me? have never read the book that's true although i think i think in maybe a first for the podcast so far i have read another book by this author just mm, not it's this only book. sort of a first because you had read another stephen king thing but it wasn't one of his fiction books that's true so it's it's, it's mostly a first it does strike me as wild that you would have been assigned this in sixth grade trying to think what I would have read in sixth grade or like what would I what I would have been assigned in sixth grade what I read in sixth grade was honestly probably mostly Star Wars novels but um I think I was assigned The Hobbit in sixth grade Hmm. and then some like other stuff that's like oh yeah that sounds like a a school reading assignment kind of book but uh right so I read it what was the question (laughs) (laughs) um and initial impressions yeah, so I didn't really have any expectations either way going in. I had heard of the book before. As I recall, I think it is one of those books that has, at various points, um, been kind of cited if you're like, what's what's like the, the sort of medieval fantasy that has like well-rounded female characters or, you know, heroines or whatever. So all I really knew going in was that I think I had heard about it in that context of like the main character's a girl and it's like done well and not like done weird, like some random old white guy doing it. But yeah, I mean, I I tended to avoid and and I think I, I guess my entire life I've largely avoided this particular genre of fantasy, but uh, this was not as straightforward a fantasy story as I necessarily would have guessed. And that is mostly good, I think, for me. I do love a setting where the author is going to invent words for things that already have names. Yeah. I really liked that. A couple of the ones that really stood out to me were um, uh, Malak as the word for tea. Mm Mm-hmm. 
like the servant class of people were the half or like I said, like I said before, princess's soul prince was Sola. Yeah. You mentioned half or it's like, it's not that that's like the name of a, of a race of people or whatever. It's just kind of lowercase H. It's like a synonym for, I don't know, surf maybe. Right. I definitely know that you sort of have not an aversion so much, but just like a general disinterest to sort of cookie cutter fantasy. And I don't really care for cookie cutter fantasy myself. So so I I picked this knowing that I, I was pretty sure I wasn't subjecting you to cookie cutter fantasy. But I, I remember there being something special about it. Uh, and that didn't disappoint. It's not to say that I'm not going to pick any down the road. I, I, I do have my eye on like possibly a Terry Brooks book, but I don't think his sort of Shannara stuff would cut it because like, even when I was reading it, I was just like, this is just Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I've spent most of my life um, avoiding Shannara looking over my shoulder to see if it's like lurking in the shadows. (laughs) Uh, His magic kingdom books, however, are uh, an interesting little take on things, but we'll we'll get there. And, And to be sure, I don't necessarily just categorically like dislike the genre i just find that usually a thing in the sort of medieval fantasy genre at least when we're talking about like medieval europe um as sort of the archetype there just needs to be something else going on that is like a hook some unique trait of the world or element of the story or or whatever uh, I'm ultimately a big believer in in that like any genre could be super engaging to me in the hands of the right author. And some genres, I just have more trouble finding that author than others. Yeah. I fantasy, just, you know, regular old fantasy often gets bogged down with a lot of tropes at this point that people just sort of take for granted for fantasy and often some of those tropes are problematic or just boring, played out. And there were definitely some tropes. I I sometimes amuse myself by, after I consume some some media, going to that tropes website and seeing like what things it has pulled out of the the text that they think are like just sort of used up things. One of the ones uh, for this book was uh, Absurdly Long Staircase. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a trope. That's funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't think of where else I had seen an Absurdly Long Staircase. But when I got to that part, I was like, oh, it's one of these. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But in general, like, you know, this was this is another example of a book with a protagonist that spends their time largely alone. They have parental issues and they do some survival things. So, of course, I loved it as a child. You definitely have a type. (laughs) I was really interested going through this time with those survival uh, things, sections, usually after a battle when Eren's all fucked up from being like this mostly inexperienced person going to try to fight a dragon and getting all burned and cut up and stuff. And then having to survive in the woods for a while while she heals was those parts were very interesting to me as well as the the part where she's creating the the canet which is the special dragon proof ointment um that she finds a recipe for 
once a very long time ago, I found a Spider-Man comic that had this chunk in the back with diagrams of how he made his web shooters and all of the pseudoscience behind making his web substance. And that was just my favorite Spider-Man thing ever was the pseudoscience. And so I also really enjoyed the pseudoscience of the creation of the Kinect ultra high power dragon sun block. Yeah, that was a neat thing to spend a fair amount of time on as far as like Aaron's preparation to be a hero. Now the book didn't dwell all that much on like extensive sword training or something. Um, but, but it, it did dwell more on her, her horsemanship and chemistry. Yeah. Not to speak of the chemistry she has with her much older than her cousin, who she eventually marries because there's none of that, but um, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't, I didn't love that. I, I vaguely recalled that she ended up with that guy. And so at the beginning when it was like, when he was out horseback riding, he used to carry toddler me on his back. And I was just like, anyone that's old enough to be horseback riding that can carry you around when you're a toddler, you should not be marrying later on in this book. I did make note that I didn't really buy either of the romantic relationships she's involved in in this book. Yeah, I... Okay, so let's let's dig into that. I, I have a couple thoughts. I I could almost, I feel like, peg Aaron as being accidentally, perhaps, written as almost sort of a, I don't know, somewhere ace-ish. Because there's never any depiction of her perspective of how she desires or wants or even is attracted to, like, either of her male love interests. Any anytime there's any mention of anyone being attracted to anyone in that situation, it's always from the perspective of the dude talking about how they're attracted to her. Because it, it goes into Tor, who's her older cousin, his perspective a couple of times where he's just like talking about all these feelings that being alone with her is stirring up. And she's just kind of like, la la la, I'm oblivious. Like, I don't even remotely see you that way, clearly, in this situation. And then uh, Luthe, I don't know how you'd say it. Yeah, I debated. I, I, I landed in my brain on, on Luth, one syllable, but I, I'm not very certain that that's correct. And I don't know that I like how it sounds when I say it in words. <laughs> so there is a immortal, timeless wizard that lives off in a magical uh, hidden section of the world who has watched Eren her whole life. Um, and when he finally meets her, it goes into his mindset again and is talking about how seeing her is stirring these feelings, but it, it never once in the book talks about Aaron's feelings being stirred by, by any of these people until like the moment where she realizes that she's like resigned to the fact that she has to go back and marry Tor because it's the right thing to do. And she sort of like says that, you know, she loves him in her, her way. It was not particularly romantic in her perspective, it seemed like. And any time that Tor kind of like hit on her or implied any feelings, she was just kind of off in La La Land thinking about her chemistry project. Yeah. And in the case of her relationship with Luthe or Lutha or Luth or whatever, um, 
I think I hit a point. I think I read some section where she's talking about uh, how she's got to go marry Tor, etc. And that that's like this sacrifice to their relationship. And I believe when I got to that point the first time, I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are, are these two romantically involved? I think I had missed that until the time where the book starts talking about it was super blink if you miss it. Yeah. Which I think was probably how my teacher got away with recommending that we read this book in sixth grade. Uh, there is like a super chaste kiss scene. And then there is one like little two line sexual innuendo where he's like, if you come join me in my sleeping role or whatever by this fire, you're not going to get much sleep tonight. And she's like, good. And then it cuts to a new scene. Yeah, I, I did. I did find that, that again when I was like, hold on, let me go back. And I do think that she tried to build a relationship with them about mutual interest in learning magic, but it didn't. You know, because most of it is from Aaron's point of view and there is no scene of intense longing or whatever, because like, I think she is just not all that interested in that most of the time. It does kind of creep up like, oh, I guess they're involved now. Wasn't sure if Aaron liked him, knew he liked her, didn't didn't know if she gave a crap. And on some level, I think that's kind of the point, because as a character, um, you know, Aaron, I guess like Aaron has some of the responsibilities of just kind of the princess trope in fantasy. And she knows she ha has those responsibilities and she doesn't really want to have those responsibilities. That is to say, you know, marrying for political reasons, uh, being like what her culture considers polite and proper etiquette at like political functions, diplomatic functions, that kind of stuff. She wants to ride horses and swing swords and kill dragons and all of these other things. And so as the story progresses, she's always driven by those things, even though she knows that at some point, because of her role, because of her father being the king, she needs to go home and do that. And so on some level, I guess the romantic part of her life is an afterthought because she's she's always considered it kind of a responsibility she knows she has but wants to stave off as long as possible. And what she's really interested in is magic and chemistry and dragons being stabbed by her. None of what you just said, I feel like, negates my premise that I feel like she was probably accidentally written as like maybe Arrow. Then, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't saying that wasn't a counter argument. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I often grasp at representation straws, even though I know that nothing is outright said or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I'm aware that I sometimes jump to conclusions, but I feel like this one is real, real evidence based. <laughs> yeah, I can see where you can put together a an argument um, 
that Aaron isn't just heterosexual or allosexual in general. I doubt it's on purpose, but I do think that it is totally possible to make that argument and support that argument with like things from the book. Yeah. And sometimes that's how it goes, right? Like a lot of the time, especially for like asexual characters in particular, representation is retroactive. Yeah. So we we do have some other stuff to talk about. I I guess the the not like an elephant. I don't know. The awkwardly worded elephant in the room is the fantasy racism. Okay, so first off, Aaron is described as a very pale, curly, redheaded girl that looks like her mother, who is from the north, just like, a, you know, the nebulous north. And she is um, surrounded by people that just can visually automatically see that she is a foreigner and treat her badly. Uh, I hadn't really picked up on why that was until a good ways into the book where she describes everyone else as cinnamon colored with dark hair. And then I just kind of sat back and I was like, oh, oh. And then I had to Google it because I wasn't sure if cinnamon colored was what I was thinking at that moment that it was. And the the Internet does seem conflicted about the term, but mostly seems to agree that it means that it's set in a uh, predominantly black or brown, not particularly like outwardly stated kingdom. So there is a lot of racism towards the northerners, but it's brown people that don't like white people but it's written the book is written by a white woman so it's really like who's to say if she thought that she could get away with a lot of really intense racism if it was like the reverse of what is usual i'm not sure i do i do think that it's kind of great that the majority of this fantasy world is not necessarily like european then but at the same time the hero is a white girl so where do we go with that yeah i i mean the the racism elements were certainly there but the book didn't spend a ton of time with them i i felt or, or where when it did it was kind of hitting the same specific like uh, people thinking about aaron as the the which woman's daughter or whatever the term was. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a story that's about racism, but maybe I just didn't see it because I was busy missing the romantic parts. <laughs> well, so was Aaron. So this book is actually a prequel. I had no idea about that going into it um there was a a little bit in the beginning of the book uh that says something which i didn't realize was going to be so important um where did it go the hero in the crown takes place some considerable span of years before the time of the blue sword there are a few fairly dramatic topographical differences between the damar of aaron's day and that of harry's and that is because the Damar of the Blue Sword is about a just group, like a kingdom that lives in the desert. Uh, and it explains why 
in this book, Damar is not a desert. So I suspect that because they are, you know, I'm using hand quotes here, cinnamon skinned people that live in the desert, that it's possible that they're all more fantasy Middle Eastern than possibly. I, having not like looked up conversations about how people read it, I was generally picturing everyone else to be some variety of like Middle Eastern or Mediterranean, which is kind of how I took what the book gives us in that regard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the end of the book, in another sort of like blink if you miss it thing, at the end of Here in the Crown, I mean, it does explain why Damar is now suddenly a desert. It's very magical, hand-wavy, but it does, by the end, Damar's a desert. Spoiler alert for a 30-something-year-old book. Yeah, so in doing my my post-read research, I did find a lot of people talk about how great it was that this was, you know, a book that was ostensibly not set in white dude Europe, but some other people saying... Like, so is this some white woman trying to write about reverse racism? I don't know. Everyone always has has opinions on it. And I, as a white person, I'm not really qualified to speak on it. But I did want to, you know, put it out there that it's there. And I don't know what to think about it, but it's there. Indeed. So, Talat, how about him? Like I said in the beginning, I'm not a horse person, so I kind of glanced over that whole thing, even though Talat is an incredibly important part of this book. Aaron gets a horse. His name is Talat. He's white and pretty. The end. Well, (laughs) no, (laughs) there's more. He. No, I know there's more. (laughs) He was her father's war horse until he got injured. Yes, this is no. There's, there's, there's a lot more about Talat. Yeah, there's a lot of description about how he cantors and the type of saddle he needs to wear and that sort of thing. I, I could just feel myself like my eyes trying to like slide over those paragraphs quickly as I was reading it and having to stop myself. Yeah, me too. Just because of how disinterested I am in horse stuff, but that is just that is just a failing on my part. This this might be skipping ahead a little bit to talking about what I think I would have done with this book had I encountered it in sixth grade or so. Had you asked me in sixth grade or so, I think, what I didn't like about fantasy, and particularly this kind of fantasy, I would have been like, I think horses are boring and I think royal courts are boring. <laughs> Here you go. Have a book that's about royal courts and horses. Yep, and that means and, and you and know where what? the dragons are the bad guys, and aren't in the book for very, very much actual time. So, while I think I think my experience of it now is a little kinder to it, I, I do feel like this book had I found it at the time when I was like avoiding this genre. If somebody had made me read this, I would have been like, "This is why I don't read this genre." It's one of those things, and I feel this way about Tolkien as well, because I don't like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. I recognize the craft and and the the storytelling mastery where it exists, I think, but it's just not for me. This particular kind of story, 
in the way that McKinley tells it doesn't really do anything for me personally. But I'm definitely not like, it's a terrible book. Because <laughs> it's not. It's just for somebody else that likes horses. I don't want to... I do feel like all of the picking apart of it I've done so far has definitely kind of been still with love, though, because I I did really like it. And I don't want anyone listening to this to think that all I have to say about it is the elements of it that I've chosen to to pick apart. So I will give Talat some of the screen time I suppose he deserves. Okay. Yes. While Erin is convalescing from her poisoning incident, which was like at a dare by the girl in the court who's like her bully, she hangs out with her dad's old retired warhorse who got injured, carrying him back to safety from a battle. And they have a very nice, very cute relationship very strong bond he you know saves her a number of times they like clearly i think the strongest relationship in this book is between aaron and her horse not aaron and any of these dudes there's actual mention of like them having a deep understanding of each other's feelings and communication <laughs> and probably probably some interesting stuff to say about aaron learning how to ride without reins but I don't know anything about riding horses to know how special it is to ride without reins while carrying a sword. So that's all Greek to me, as they say. But um, if you like horses and you like fantasy, you should absolutely check this out and uh, hopefully get more out of the horse parts than I did. Yeah. To be sure, I did make the note a couple times over the course of reading the book. Oh no, Talat's going to die. And he, and then he didn't. And I was happy. So good on you book. I, I wanted the horse to live. I felt like he was safe. There were a couple of points where I was like, Ooh, Ooh, this is dangerous, dangerous for the horse. But I, I kind of felt like they, they put so much into him that I didn't think that they were going to just off him like that. That felt, very cruel and Robin McKinley didn't feel cruel. Yeah. She's not George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Speaking of, Ooh, I have a snarky George R. R. Martin note. Okay. So this book takes a neat approach to dragons because they are, um, mostly died out. Uh, a lot of the ones that are terrorizing the kingdom are actually small, like, like large chicken, turkey dog sized. It explains a couple of times. She doesn't get to meet like a full, full on like fantasy style dragon until like halfway, more than halfway through the book. So I thought that was kind of cool world building and um, which George R. R. Martin was clearly inspired by when he talked about his dragons in a song of the meaningless character deaths and ice. Ice and fire. That the dragons all just got smaller and smaller and died out. Is I, I'm pretty sure a plot point from that, but I was like, this came way first. Have neither read nor watched it, so can't. Oh, you've escaped some cultural discourse. Good on you. 
So that's how she works her way up to, to fighting the big giant black dragon on the cover of the book, depending on which version of the book you see, defeating all of these chicken and dog-sized <laughs> dragons. And there's some cool, cool combat in this book. I sometimes find reading combat scenes in books to be a little taxing, but I, I enjoyed it was brief enough and interesting enough that it kept my attention. Yeah. And, and she gets just constantly injured. Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool because often people, you know, the, the hero goes into the battle and is out, outsmarts the thing and and just kills it with ease. And Aaron is just like getting completely destroyed fighting these things. Yeah. Even with her anti-dragon Vaseline. Yeah, when fights happen, they are pretty brutal, which is which is cool because it, it does sell the notion that what she is doing is dangerous and heroic. So by the time she's worked her way up to fighting the, the big guy whose name I can't remember, the dragon, I mean. Mar? Maur? M-A-U-R. Yes, Mar. Uh more more I it's guess. hard to yep. make your mouth say yeah a dragon mouth could say it just fine i'm sure but by the time she works up to fighting mar like there is i think a visceral sense of she might not make it out of this one um unscathed like if you're reading the book you can tell there's too much of the book left for her to die but <laughs> the president has been set enough that things can definitely happen to her that have lasting consequences that she might be facing some of those. And she does, she gets severely wrecked by Mar. He's kind of a, a, a lasting presence because of the outcome of that fight for the remainder of the book, which I thought was pretty rad. I liked the whole, like his skull containing a curse his spirit sort of living on by cursing the kingdom as long as they kept it as a trophy. I wish more time was spent with that, but I'll take what I got. Yeah, he he burns her pretty severely despite the dragon ointment. And also there's this sort of implication as she's experiencing getting burned that his fire is not just like burning her flesh, but it's like poisoning her sort of. And that's, uh, that's where my whole like magical PTSD comment comes in because she goes home and she's a hero, but she's dying because of this just like malaise and dragon magic curse poison. Aaron spends a lot of the book sick from th things. Sick and, and recovering. Yeah. Uh, and delirious it's, sometimes. It's, <laughs> it's interesting. But the comment that you just made about it's too early in the book for her to die. You know, who knows? Because the book starts. And she's like in her 20s ish. And then it flashes back to preteen. Takes you all the way back to where it was in the beginning and then goes forward. I, I think this is probably the first book that I ever read where it did that sort of like flashback and then go back to where we started and then go forward from their thing. So really, were we at any point too early for her to die? Because she could die and then it's then be like, 
oh, okay, now I'm going to go back and talk about this chunk of my life. <laughs> the sky was the limit. The flashback precedent was already set. But of course, she she can't die because a uh, weird immortal wizard in the tower that saves her from her magical PTSD dips her in an immortality pond. And so she becomes immortal. And and learns that she has to go uh, kill her uncle that she didn't know she had. And using a sword that she didn't know existed. Yeah. That's that's all the, the at the 11th hour stuff. I will say for a little bit, because of how brutal the fight with Mar was, and the fact that like, so the last the last time in the book that I made the note that I thought Talat was going to die was the fight with Mar. Because I was like, I don't think that Aaron's going to die here, but I think that something is going to happen. She's going to lose something that is going to kind of like bring her back down to earth or whatever to establish how severe a fight this was. And I thought that losing to lot would potentially be one of those things. Um, but he he's fine. But after we were in like the sort of dreamy realm of this mage plot, I started to think, wait, is this, is this like, is any of this really happening? Is this just the invented fantasies of Aaron's dying brain? That could have been interesting. Cause the other thing, and I guess now that I, now that I think about it, maybe there is some theme here. The, the pack of dogs and cats yes that show up they were they were something else and they're like wild dogs and cats it's not like a bunch of beagles and and, and tabbies uh although that would have been cute <laughs> they start following her around so so really like the story is mostly aaron not wanting to have to associate with other humans especially in the way that other humans decide she should associate with them and instead, her relationships with animals, if you count dragons as animals, are like the important ones in her life, both good and bad. You know, Talat's her best friend. These cats and dogs just are like, you are our queen, we suppose, and we will follow you forever. And also cuddle you, which is important. One of the things we haven't talked about at all is the fact that in this world the uh the royalty all innately have magic they call it the gift and it is sort of different for all of them and it's just useful everyday stuff like they know how to magically mend things and somebody else knew how to um magically get a stain out of a, a, a shirt yeah. or something like that and i think i think um, cousin dolores can hear a pin drop <laughs> and camilo shapeshifts oh gosh does that mean we have to talk about bruno now we don't talk about bruno that's true not on this podcast okay. so <laughs> we're dating ourselves um i mean that that movie is not old enough for that to be a serious problem no, I know, but like, you know, in the future, when people go back to this podcast as, you know, the cultural touchstone that it will certainly yeah. be, they'll say, oh, we know when episode 11 was recorded. Yeah. 
a year after Encanto came out. Yeah, he- hello, future people. Uh, if you're if you're listening to this twenty plus years after it was recorded, Encanto was really recent to us, <laughs> but not all that recent. Really. Um. Yes, exactly. So they they have small gifts, uh, and there's a lot that is put upon the fact that Aaron has no gift, has no gift, has no gift, has no gift. Maybe Aaron's a bastard, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I did spend a lot of like the first third of the book trying to figure, trying, trying to like pluck out instances of where she might actually have a gift and she's just not recognizing it. And I think I know what it is because later on she gets magic, but by means of magical wizard tower boyfriend and being dipped in the magic pond. Yeah. But I think there's multiple times where she's trying to escape the castle without notice. And she describes it like, I should have been noticed, but that person's eyes just seemed to sort of like glide right over me and I didn't get caught. I think when she doesn't want to be noticed, she isn't. She can just walk away with a bag full of stuff and nobody stops her. There were two two instances of, of, of that outright being said that she could not explain why she didn't get caught. That would track with just how, especially some of her harder dragon fights that we see are somewhat predicated on her being able to get the drop on her enemy, even if the fight's already started. Like, not just from an ambush perspective, catch them totally off guard, but them losing track of her. That, that, that's compelling. I, I think that that's a interesting theory. I, I figured she had a gift of some kind because the... Um, she chewed the circa, mm-hmm. maybe. And there was some element of like, people say that you can't survive that if you aren't of royal blood. And she survived it, even though it was unpleasant. Well, Luthay then myth busts that afterwards and says that that's just something that the uh, the royals say. And that the circa is not actually going to kill anyone but the common folk don't touch it because they think it's going to kill them. Sure. Uh, Regardless, um, my discussion question is, if you were royalty and you had a weird little helpful but not mind-blowing magical gift, what would would it be? This is presuming I'm in like this world? Yeah. The world of this book? Yes. Sure. That's... It's the way the question is phrased as of right now. I think I would like to be able to make people feel like they have somewhere else to be. (laughs) And it is kind of a joke, but particularly if I was part of the royal family, I do not want anything to do with personally diplomatic functions and like political dinners and stuff like that. I would love to just be able to like kind of show up a little bit and like hear some needs, uh, you know, have, have an audience with some folks and stuff. And then when I was like, when my introvert energy was low, I could just kind of like sigh. And then everybody would be like, Oh, but we have a tea time in about half an hour. So thank you. Thank, thank you for seeing us. We need to go, though. And I'd be like, oh, you don't have to go. And they'd be like, no, 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 we really do. <laughs> That's 
that's cute. I like that. So to to sort of like wrap up the discussion of the book itself uh, uh, section. Hold on. Just, um, what? What? What would you want as your gift? That's not the way this works. I think so. So very infrequently does the person asking the question actually answer the question on this podcast. When when I asked you what museum you would like to live in, I also told you what museum I would like to live in. So I'm calling in the debt. <laughs> oh, crap. Um, well, I'm going to apologize to Derek for all of this long thinky space he's got to cut out. It, ta- it takes very little time to cut out a, a long, silent chunk. Thinky space. I mean, honestly, I, I do really think that that being able to mend something broken thing is incredibly useful for how clumsy I am, but not flashy enough for how much pizzazz I require in my life. So I would like, I suppose if I lived in this world, mm, crap, I didn't have an answer and that's why I'm. Well, I hope I hope this is a learning moment. It had had you been podcasting with a real dragon, you would be dead now. Ah, <laughs> oh, crap! I don't, I don't know. We, we can um, we can uh, we can proceed. It's your episode. Yeah, I just don't have an answer. Maybe by the end, I'll I'll have one. Um. So, so ultimately, reading this book, I, I felt like was a very positive experience for me. I haven't had the experience, I think, yet with this podcast where I reread something that I knew that I really loved, where I felt like it still had a lot of the same, I don't know, just, you know, our whole premise, like, is the magic still there? I felt like for me, the magic was still there because... I just I, I could feel myself like settling back into like 10 year old me brain as I read this and remembering how it made me feel. And it was just ultimately like even with all the little nitpicks that I have stated, I think it was a really good book and I really enjoyed reading it. Cool. Is it my go now? I, I also liked it overall. Um, there are a lot of things that it did that I thought were good interesting thoughts Uh, it didn't carry through with some of them the way i would like and like overall the end and not just like the literal like very last page or whatever but the climax of the story and where things ended i didn't entirely feel satisfied but i also wasn't sure if i should because i knew that there was at least one other book in this continuity and so i wasn't entirely certain if like some of that like unfinished feeling was because that's what the other book is about. Um, uh, Overall, I still don't think it's like super for me personally, Um, but certainly if I were to look at like McKinley's other books and saw a premise that really grabbed me, I would, I would, totally imagine that I would be on board for that. I I think that her style probably would work really well for me in a context that isn't a genre that I kind of actively don't care for very much. 
I'm not an avid fan fiction reader. I've read a couple here and there, uh, mostly things like Good Omens when I wanted to go read some some nice, uh, explicitly asexual Good Omens interpretation fiction. Um, but I felt like this this would have been like prime fodder for some some maybe like fix it fix or explicitly stating some of the things that I thought about this. So I went to AO3 to see just if there was anything. Uh, and with 42 hits, which is not that many, uh, I've yet to find one that really did much, but I'm still, I'm still making my way through. So maybe, maybe out there, there is a fix it fic, which uh, addresses some of these, these things. You know, it would be wild. I thought about this while we were talking. Oh, I just thought of what my answer is. Sorry, you you talk. So, this would make just a like almost sickeningly adaptable story to like a Disney princess musical. <laughs> Talat would be great. He probably wouldn't talk, but he'd have a lot of personality, like the horse from Tangled, whose name I can't remember. And the dog and cat group would like probably have some kind of musical number and Maurer's villain song would be rad. In this book, there is mention several times about how paper is very hard to come by. And Erin has to do all of her scientific notations on this one piece of parchment, just like writing them as tiny as she possibly can. So my magical gift would be that when I am done using a piece of parchment, I could magically erase it so that I could use it again because I personally cannot survive without to-do lists. If I had to in this world, I, I need, I need places to scribble notes and thoughts and random musings. I, I cannot not have a piece of paper or a notebook near me. Just can't, can't exist. So that's my answer. It's pretty good. The, the having a whiteboard is a good power. I think. <laughs> I just invented the fantasy whiteboard. <laughs> back to the disney princess thing this was written in 1984 so you know just or it was written slightly before that but it was released then so you know i would say that it's like a smidge before the the you know advent of the just 30 the, the renaissance disney princesses yeah by a woman named robin mckinley uh, she was born in ohio in 1952 she is still alive, and she lives uh, now in the UK. She bounced around a lot of Navy towns in her youth, which is super relatable to me, uh, and one of which was in Maine. She also went to high school and grad school in Maine. So that started turning the gears in my head as to whether or not maybe my sixth grade teacher knew her or something, and that's why she had us read the book. I don't know. I, I have no way of finding this out because I don't remember the name of my sixth grade teacher. She started out by working in a bookstore and wrote her first book while she worked there. And that was a beauty, a retelling of the story of beauty and the beast, which I think is the one that you said you'd read. No, I've read sunshine, which is a somewhat later book. It's a vampire, um, vampire romance. Oh, right, 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 right. I don't generally read vampire romances, but that was assigned uh, to me in a college <laughs> course that was on fantasy it was just kind of like the teacher felt like he needed to cover a a book that was in sort of a m modern dark fantasy 
sort of genre and he went with that rather than like Anne Rice or, or whatnot. I liked it. She's definitely sort of like included in the grouping of um, the first, you know, bunch of modern fantasy authors to do the whole like strong independent heroine bit. Um, and as we mentioned, this book is a prequel um, the to the uh, 1982, 1981, a couple years earlier, I forgot to write down the precise date, uh, The Blue Sword. She's written four other short stories set in the Damar world, but no other other novels after Hero of the Crown. And uh, and this book won the 1985 Newbery Medal. And I think my favorite factoid that I found out about Robin McKinley is that she has an active blog to this day uh, where she makes a lot of Star Trek jokes. And I love that for her. The the footnotes, I, I highly recommend just going to this blog. It, it's so funny. The footnotes are the real star. She writes the blog and then there's just tons of footnotes. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to quote one of, the footnotes from the most recent blog entry full disclosure i so don't keep up if it's not lord of the rings and lord of the rings has another little footnote symbol after it star trek the original next gen deep space nine buffy with lashings of farscape or babylon 5 i don't know it and i won't make my cranky ill-judged allusions to it footnote to the lord of the rings comment the book not the movie Peter Jackson should burn in hell a hem. She's got a lot of strong feelings and she's a nerd. And I love that. I, I find her very funny. That makes sense. Sunshine definitely had a few explicit DS9 references. Oh, that's wonderful. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to continue poking along at her blog and I think I might go find some other stuff. I'm probably going to read the blue sword. I have it. I, I bought it at a whim at a used bookstore several years ago because I recognized the name Robin McKinley, not having any idea that it had anything to do with Hero on the Crown. But it's in my pile on my bookshelf of books that I've not read yet. That pile is significant. And, you know, her being a current author, there's a lot that you can find about her interviews and interesting things like that, but nothing that I've found particularly relevant to this this discussion just that she's interesting and you should look her up all right so uh bum 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 sound effect i don't know what sort of sound effect a bunch of giant peaches would make giant peach sound effect kapew, kapew. that's i don't not. i don't think they go kapew no squish giant peaches how many out of five giant peaches would you give this here book that we have read uh how many did I give Hardy Boys? Yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> I listened to the episode several times recently, and I do not remember how many. I listened to it recently, it, too. It's more than Hardy remember. Boys, is why I ask. I think Hardy Boys is still presently bottom tier for me of the things we've read. So I want to say, I feel like I gave Hardy Boys like a two and a half or something like that. I, I'd, I'd give this a, a solid three. You know, like I said, not entirely for me, but a lot of bits and pieces that I really liked. And, you know, if I knew somebody who liked some of the elements that are in this, um, you know, if I knew somebody who was just really into uh, 
horse related fantasy uh, or, or, or even just like more generally sort of the medieval fantasy area and they hadn't read here in the crown, I'd be like, you should probably read that one. You'd probably really dig it. Um, so that that's kind of where I'm at it is like three uh, good book, cool stuff, not necessarily for me, but obviously, uh, obviously good for other people that find more to relate to in it. I'm going to have to give all of these, these giant peaches votes, ranks, whatever we're calling them. I'm just going to have to consider them to be like in a bubble because I can't remember what I've rated things before. And I don't necessarily want to stack them against each other because of how I can't remember. So that being said, (laughs) I'm going to give this one a four because oh gosh, I'm really waffling. Can, can, we, can I hear like 4.25? Is that getting a little too incremental? That's fine. I'm going to go with 4.25 because I did have a lot of that good nostalgia feel. I did enjoy it. It gave me a bit to think about. It made me want to go check out AO3, which should be, you know, maybe that 0.25 is my extra like added oomph if something compels me to want to go see if there's fan fiction for it. So next, uh, next episode is going to be a Brandon pick. What is your selection? It's been a long time getting to this selection, but we're finally doing it. Next time we're going to be talking about Dinotopia by James Gurney. I'm very excited. I like dinosaurs. Look, if you thought my rambling about animorphs was bad, and listener, here's the thing. You've probably heard the Animorphs episode by now. Hopefully, it was edited down to a length that was digestible and made it seem like we were good, efficient podcasters. But in the recording, I rambled for a long time. I rambled to a degree that was stellar, uh, impressive, uh, but not in a good way, uh, like tubular. <laughs> And it is only by the grace of having a good editor that that episode is not a total mess. I'm going to ramble for longer on Dinotopia. You're much more consistent about having a lot to ramble about. With my selections, I just kind of like have bullet points. I think our various episodes are very different tonally from each other just because of how different our brains are. I feel like I keep accidentally discovering that there's like a a specifically interesting element underlying something. Like I didn't decide we were going to read Hardy Boys with the knowledge that there was going to be a whole like background to how young reader uh, juvenile lit began. But that's what happened. And I keep expecting to uncover stuff like that, but I don't. <laughs> Regardless, um, my dog ate my book report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon and edited. Thank you by the fabulous Derek Phelan. The music in this podcast is licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts generated by otter.ai. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai, but also had to be edited by each of us alternating because 
otterday.ai can really only make out so much of our rambling and turn it into actual words. Have a question or comment for the team? It does turn it into actual words, just not ones that make sense in the order that it puts them in. Uh, you can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail.com. We would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up or if you want to yell at us about our opinions on horses or anything else. We encourage feedback and um, definitely want to know how other people experienced these books. In my defense, I liked Misty of Shinkatigue. I don't know what that is. Mm, well, I liked it. It's about Good a horse. You. Yeah. <laughs> that's for the that's for the horse likers in the audience. Well, the horse girls in my elementary school were just so mean. And horses are terrifying. Yeah, but in Misty of Chincoteague, they can swim. Horses can swim in general. Well, but like it's yeah, about them being able to swim, sort of. It's not really about that. It's it's a Virginia thing. It it, it takes place in, in Virginia, so maybe it's just but a Virginia thing. All I know about ponies in the water is that Sea Pony song from the My Little Ponies movie in the 80s. I'm not going to sing it. Oh, yeah. No, I know the one you're talking about. We're done. I'm, I'm hitting stop. Yeah, we're done. No, no singing Sea Pony songs. <laughs>